got to give it up. The views expressed on this episode of Walking Through the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions with Chris Schroeder do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or our affiliates. KHLT is not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Now here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. And investigate we will. Welcome folks to Walking Through the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions with myself and Chris Schroeder. Hi Chris. Hey Monty, how was your New Year's? It it was uneventful and and New Year's when it's uneventful is always good. (laughs) I would agree with that, I would agree with that. (laughs) I stayed home, I didn't want to... You know, with all the crazies out there, I didn't want to go for a walk and end up running over them. Well, it's amateur night out there, so you've got to be very careful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is correct. Folks, our Take, our, our take 12, our, our email is take12radio.comcast.net. Write it down, know it, memorize it, because we want to hear from you. And today, in uh, walking through the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, we're going to be talking about Step 4, Part 2. Uh, we're going to be picking it up on page 50 of the 12 but. 12 and 12. And if you don't have a 12 and 12, as always, I like to mention, go to aa.org forward slash 12 and 12, and you can follow along with us. Uh, how do you want to start out today, buddy? Well, you know, I want, I want to just recap a couple of things that we talked about last week, Monty, because, I, you know, we're moving into the second part, uh, really, of, of step four here. Uh, and there's there's a couple of really important points that I think you, you need to understand as you move into this. You know, recovery really is a shift in perception. Re- recovery is viewing your world with a different set of glasses. It's it's understanding things at a different level. It's reacting to things at a different level. And to get to that point, to get to that point where you've had that personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism, as it talks about in other places in the in in the uh, uh, in the recovery literature, you need to do some work. You need to take some action for that shift to happen. Now, you know, in step four, one of the things that ha- that should be happening in step four is. You should be recognizing, uh, accurately recognizing the part that you've played in your own life, and uh, and and how you how your alcoholism has contributed to your failure at life on uh, on many many levels. Um, there's a, you know in the in the book Alcoholics Anonymous uh, there, on page fifty two there's a series of bedevilments. And the bedefflements are things like uh, uh, like you're not in control of your emotional nature, that you're prey to misery and depression. Um, you, you can't seem to make a, a living. You, you can't seem to develop the type of quality to your life that you would want. Right. You know, when we start looking at step four, we start to identify the things, the actions that we've taken that have produced these negative results in our life. 
In other words, we, we identify our character defects. Now, one of the things that should happen when you go through the 12-step process, one of the things that should happen is you should be able to understand at an experiential level the spiritual axiom. Uh, in other words, you you will be able to truly own the things that you've done and and what they've done to contribute to the negative effects of your life. In other words, you will begin to see that your problems have not come at you, they have come from you. And that is such a shift in perception that it's it's remarkable. It's it's like the resentful, pissed off alcoholic starts to do this four step work and starts to see that it's it's not those people. It's not the hostile universe, you know, swooping in to make your life miserable and persecute you. You have caused all of these problems <laughs> in your life. You're responsible. <laughs> I used to say, Chris, I used to say to my parents, I mean, I, I can't believe how many times I would say this in a day. I didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't do it. Yeah. yeah. It's Not inconvenient to have it be your fault. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you so are looking for an excuse that'll, that'll get you off the hook. The great thing about the fourth step is it doesn't let you off the hook. All there is is hook. And, and and that's actually good news, because the good news is this: if your if the problems in your life really weren't your fault, it would make it a whole lot harder to fix them. That's true. <laughs> you know, if if it true if you truly have shot yourself in the foot every single time, then maybe you can take the bullets out of the gun, and. And this is this is really uh, really an exercise that has a lot of hope behind it. Now, if you're an unrecovered alcoholic or an unrecovered drug addict, you are not going to even begin to believe that all the problems in your life uh, were were uh, were constructed by you. You you know you've created this drama and and the, these problems. In your life. You're not going to believe that. However. If you truly experience the the processes and power of uh, say steps three through nine, if you truly experience those, you're going to begin to understand. Uh, you're going to have a more accurate representation of uh, the part that you play in your life and how it's um, how the, how your actions and your attitudes have nev- negatively impacted uh, all the quality in your life. Mm-hmm. So you know, I wanted to wanted to talk about that again because you know why do we do this? Uh, the the alcoholic or the drug addict are uh, are always very uh, very attached to why why should I have to do these steps? I don't understand. I don't see how they how they could actually do anything for me. I don't see the practical application being worth my time and effort. For me, you know that's that's the typical attitude that the alcoholic or the or the drug addict has prior to take going through the twelve steps. So I don't think we can encourage these um, these unrecovered alcoholics and addicts enough about how powerful the step process is mm-hmm. and how you have to experience it. You can't just read it and then make a decision on how it's going to impact your life. You need to do it and then experience 
how it's the impact on your life. Amen. All right, let's start reading. We're at the top of page 50. We, we did about two-thirds of uh, step four last week, and we'll, we'll finish it up this week. By now, the newcomer has probably arrived at the following conclusions, that his character defects representing instincts gone astray have been the primary cause of his drinking and his failure at life, that unless he is now willing to work hard at the elimination of the worst of these defects, both sobriety and peace of mind will still elude him that all the faulty foundation of his life uh, will have to be torn out and built anew on bedrock. Now willing to commence the search for his own defects, he will ask, just how do I go about this? How do I take inventory of myself? You know, this paragraph is is assuming that we're able to convince uh, our prospect or, you know, whoever we're we're working with on, on the step work or it talks in here about the sponsor. Uh, that we can convince the person of the need for this. You know, in, in, today, in today's day, day and age, Monty, there, you know, in the 12-step fellowships, the craziest thing that you see in the 12-step fellowships are people that aren't taking the 12 steps. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and some of them have been around 20 years. It, it, you, you, you ask somebody, oh, you're in a 12-step fellowship? Yes, you know, it saved my life. Uh, well, so you've done the 12 steps? Well, not formally. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. But, um, but it, again, our primary responsibility, if we're sponsoring in a support group, our primary responsibility is the teaching and practice of these 12 steps and uh, a sufficient presentation of this uh, process to the newcomer. That that's our that's our responsibility. You know, there's a whole lot of other things that you can get involved with. You can do the cookie. You can be the cookie guy. You know, you can you can uh, you can drive uh, drive the boobies from the hatch to the to, to the meetings. There's a whole lot of things that you can do that are service oriented. But your primary role is to get an experience with these steps, and then help other people get experience with these steps. It's more important than taking somebody to a meeting. <laughs> you, you know, much more important. I mean, read any of the foundational literature. They talk very little about bringing people to meetings. They talk a whole lot about offering uh, a recovery program uh, to, 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 the, to the people who want help. Right. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those folks... Uh, turn into old timers and there's you know we have a, a bunch of people that supposedly have experience sitting there teaching newcomers uh, or not teaching newcomers I should say and it's just a matter of you know read the steps or how it works every meeting and that and there you go you know uh, I think people can become lazy uh, and what will happen is it's very easy to, to, you know, say, hey, I'm going off to the to the five o'clock, uh, you know, uh, uh, closed me closed meeting down the street. You know, that's very easy. You hop in the car, you go down there, you see some of your friends, you have some coffee. It's a little bit more involved when you start working with people and you start bringing them over to your house or, or you start spending hours on the weekend with them, uh, you know, detailing out step work and hearing fifth steps and go, going over amends prior to someone going out and making them. You know, that's, that's a little bit more of a commitment. Uh, and, and that's really what you're signing up for if you're offering somebody help. 
you, you can't just you can't just say, take somebody's phone number and, and say, hey, you know, I'll see, you know, just go go to meetings and you know, give me a call if if you have any problems. You can't you can't do that. That would be like a doctor saying, you know, just hang out in the waiting room, you know, a while and, uh, you know, uh, uh, see how the waiting room goes. <laughs> you know, don't worry about the operation. It, it's 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 irresponsible at uh, a hundred levels. Yeah. Since step four is but the beginning of a lifetime practice, it can be suggested that he first have a look at those personal flaws, which are acutely troublesome and fairly obvious. Using his best judgment of what has been right and what has been wrong, he might make a rough survey of his conduct with respect to his primary instincts for sex, security, society. Looking back over his life, he can readily get underway by consideration of questions such as these. You know, this is interesting. He's talking about uh, uh, money, power, sex. Mm-hmm. All right, those are, the, those are the big three. And in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, where it actually explains how to do a four-step, the, com- the third column is the column where you look at your, uh, your instincts, what, what, what is affected in your life. And you look at what is harmed, threatened, or interfered with as it relates to money, power, sex. Uh, those are those are the big three. If, if if someone is interfering with, or even we even believe they might interfere with us gaining more money, power, sex, we're going to have a problem with them. If we think that they're trying to interfere with the money, the power, the sex that we have now, it's even worse. We get even more resentful, and we 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 start to. To uh, to sabotage uh, the the relationships, however however we can, and it's because these instincts that we have that are overblown because we're alcoholics. It's because of these instincts that we set the ball rolling with resentment and fear. Uh, mm, yeah. If 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 nothing is threatened, harmed, or interfered with, we don't have anything to be afraid of, and we don't have anything to be mad at. So we need to look at those areas. And Bill was incredibly, incredibly intuitive to be able to point at that as being the real problem. Because it would have been so easy for him to say, the alcoholic's problem is alcohol. You know, he went past that. and he yeah. said, The alcoholic's problem is instincts running, uh, running awry where it concerns our money, our power, our sex. It was it was brilliant. Well, one of the one of the things that that just I I, I it's like uh, nails or fingernails on a chalkboard to me when I hear it. Is uh, many twelve step support meetings will have, um, especially ones that deal with alcoholism. That they'll have uh, an outline for the person who's chairing the meeting, and in the outline it'll say, uh, "We ask that you please." Um, limit your sharing to your problems with alcoholism and then you don't you know you don't hear any solution you know if it was about if if people understood what problems relating to your alcoholism was you'd be okay but they take that to mean mean drunkologues yeah right drugologues right which are uh, can can be very damaging in a meeting setting. They're very very appropriate for the twelve step call. You know to to tell your drunkalog or your drugalog or you know old war stories. Very appropriate for a twelve step call. 
very damaging in a discussion meeting or a speaker meeting because you, what, what you can what you can do is you can be using your experience to separate you from other people because we we so often have different drunk experiences but we don't have different alcoholic experiences the alcoholic experience is more about emotions and mental thought processes and resentments fears guilt shame remorse anxieties depression you know that's that's your alcoholic experience your 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 drunk log though has a lot to do with how many cars you crashed well, the, the thing is, is there's there's alcoholics that have never crashed a car, and there's heavy drinkers that have crashed more than you have. That doesn't that doesn't define alcoholism, right? Uh, right. <laughs> you know, you, you're not defining alcoholism with those drunk logs. What you're doing is is the people who have different experiences get to say, "Well, I wasn't as bad as he was." Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's damaging. Now. Now, you know, there's always things that uh, are going to continue to go on in uh, in the recovery rooms, Monty, basically because of uh, uninformed, inexperienced group members. You know, and and I believe uh, I believe strong sponsorship can uh, can really help uh, help change that. When and how and in just what instances did my selfish pursuit of sex relation damage other people and me? What people were hurt and how badly? Did I spoil my marriage and injure my children? In in the conduct inventory, in the fourth step, uh, you get to detail that out. You get to write about that. You get to answer uh, nine questions, basically, in the conduct inventory. Did I jeopardize my standing in the community? Just how did I react to these situations at the time? Did I burn with a guilt that nothing could extinguish or... Did I insist that I was the pursued and not the pursuer, and thus absolve myself? <laughs> How have I reacted to frustration in sexual matters? When denied, did I become vengeful or depressed? Did I take it out on other people? If there was rejection or coldness at home, did I use this as a re- reason for promiscuity? Also of importance for most alcoholics are the questions they must ask about their behavior respecting financial and emotional security. In these areas, fear, greed, possessiveness, and pride have too often done their worst. Surveying his business or employment record, almost any alcoholic can ask questions like these. In addition to my drinking problem, what character defects contributed to my financial instability? You know, Monty, my financial instability was was twofold. One of them was, you know, I didn't want to take on the responsibility of a, a really serious job because I wanted to be able to forget at 4.30, I wanted to not have to think about anything but what I wanted to think about until 7.30 the next morning. Mm-hmm. So, so I took on hourly jobs that, uh, that paid a certain amount of money but not enough money to support a family, uh, not even enough money really to, to support myself. The other thing that I did was as much of my money as I could possibly spend on myself, I on myself. When I came to uh, in, in recovery, Monty, uh, my most uh, valuable possession was a comic book collection. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, listen, I, I had a, I had a, a seven-year-old daughter. Uh, I had, a, you know, I had a wife that had left. Um, I, I did not want to spend money on a family. I wanted to spend it on things that would make me 
feel good. That is unbelievably selfish, and it lasted quite a while, quite a ways into uh, into sobriety. I, I kept trying to to fill an emotional void within myself by buying stupid things. It was just unbelievable. Well, uh, it, it reminds me of uh, early in in my uh, my journey in this recovery deal. I remember give, giving up the my right, and I say that tongue in cheek, my right to have money in my pocket. Uh, it was very odd, and I think it's I think that's something that that guys struggle with more than women. Um, we we always accuse the women of being the shopaholics, but I got to tell you something: guys like their toys, and we'll spend money too. And it was difficult for me not to, even if I wasn't going to spend it, it was difficult for me not to have at least $5 in my wallet just so I could say I've got, you know, this part of my manlyhood fulfilled. And when I gave that up, um, because that was one of the things I didn't do well if I had money in my pocket in early recovery, uh, when I gave that up, it was interesting. Years went by and it was no big deal. And today... Seldom do I have anything in my wallet, and it and it doesn't bug me, man. You know, I think it's about stewardship. I think, I think it is too. I think that if we're in a relationship with somebody, if we're in a marriage, who is going to be the better steward of the money? I think they should be the ones with responsibility for it. <laughs> you know, and and again, if our selfishness gets in the way, and you know, we want to have uh, we want to have fun money. I mean, there's nothing really wrong with fun money, as long as uh, other obligations are 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 being met. As as long as you know there's food on the table, and they're not turning off the electricity because you wanna you wanna spend things on yourself. Uh, but uh, again, this is all kind of uh, growing in responsibility. Yeah. We one of the first things you do when you enter recovery is you start to grow up. I mean, that's. That's what you're 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 supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be uh, growing up a little bit, and um, you know I'd say in the last uh, last uh, twelve years or so, um, you know my my wife has uh, has had more responsibility with the money than me. Uh, they've they've paid the bills, they've balanced the checkbook, and uh, I've been I've been about the business of earning, and uh, and and trying to be responsible, you know with with my uh, financial needs and and not you know not uh, not have total access to the money and go wild with it you yeah. know what i mean yep did fear and inferiority about my fitness for my job destroy my confidence and fill me with conflict did i try to cover up the those feelings of inadequacy by bluffing cheating lying or evading responsibility or by uh grip griping that others failed to recognize my truly exceptional abilities I did that a lot. I, I, you know, I thought that I had these really exceptional uh, abilities, and uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was about the only one that, that thought that. Oh my uh, gosh! I got I got to share this. I was I was on. Um, I can still fall into that today. I I was on uh, my high school Facebook, uh-huh. and they have this thing. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but there's this website that has to do with classmates.com that's free um, that's associated with Facebook where they vote um, who is the best or you know what what is he most known for back in oh no 1973 
uh, when I graduated. And they they nominated me for the most funny. And I was I was taken back by that. I was thought, what? What? I mean, my gosh, I was I, I was I taught I mean I was I was in high school and I was teaching I was teaching art classes without any supervision because we had this program that we were doing. I was mentoring people, I was doing this, doing that, all this 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 other stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, funny? How come so-and-so got smart and so-and-so got uh, compassionate and so-and-so got voted for this and that? I got funny? <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> and that was just yesterday. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. That's great. You know, I, I uh, the crazy thing about me is uh, I didn't like doing things that I didn't absolutely have to do. So uh, whenever it was yearbook photo time or whatever, I was out, I was out in the smoking area. You're not even <laughs> going to find me in any yearbooks. I think my name appears once on on the ski club because uh, because I used to like to go to the go to the uh, uh, go to the ski slopes and sit in the bar all day. I wouldn't ski. I just sit in the bars. There you go. I also graduated. I actually graduated in '74, but uh, so that's where we come from. The same time. Yeah. Did I overvalue myself and play the big shot? Did I have such unprincipled ambition that I double-crossed and undercut my associates? Was I extravagant? Did I recklessly borrow money, caring little whether it was repaid or not? Was I a pinch penny, refusing to support my family properly? Did I cut corners financially? What about the quick money deals, the stock market, and the races? Business women in AA will naturally find that many of these questions apply to them, too. But the alcoholic housewife can also make the family financially insecure. She can juggle charge accounts, manipulate the food budget, spend her afternoons gambling, and run her husband into debt by irresponsibility, waste, and extravagance. But all alcoholics who have drunk themselves out of jobs, family, and friends will need to cross-examine themselves ruthlessly to determine how their own personality defects have thus demolished their security. You know, what a great line. How has our personality defects demolished our security and the security of the people that we love? That is, an, that is a, a very, very worthwhile uh, pursuit. Yeah, I did a... Um... What we, uh, my sponsor and I did what we call a damage assessment and uh, writing down all the, all the financial, uh, you know, I mean, li- literally writing down. I, I mean, he, and I, I, I thought I had it all done. He said, did, did you count mileage? <laughs> and I, no. And he says, well, you need to count mileage. Did you count attorney's fees? Did you count time lost from work because you were in jail? You know, you got, you got, that all counts. And man, I got to tell you, buddy, I could have bought some pretty good-sized properties by the time we were done with that. Oh, it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's remarkable. It's re- it's remarkable. How, you know, we're the we're definitely the people who uh, a lot of times they tell us we've got a lot of potential. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and until they stop telling us. Yeah. The most common symptoms of emotional insecurity are worry, anger, self-pity, and depression. These stem from causes which sometimes seem to be within us and at other times to come from without. Worry, anger, self-pity, or depression. Today, they talk a lot about depression and they talk a lot about anxiety, which would be, uh, which would be worry uh, uh, and, and depression would be depression. Those are two things that alcoholics just seem to have a lot of. And those are two things that, um, 
that a lot of times we seek medical treatment for. We seek, uh, we seek pharmaceutical uh, treatment for that, and that can cause its own uh, series of problems. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. I mean, you know, uh, you're just off of, uh, of a bender, you know, and you're depressed, and you're going, and, and every time you drink, you get depressed afterwards. So you go see a, a nurse practitioner or somebody, and, and you say, I'm depressed, and then they, they give you something, an antidepressant, and, and you may need that at, at some point in your life. But, sure. but, but man, in, in early sobriety, of course you're depressed. And we got all these misdiagnoses, people with bipolar disorder and clinical depression and, and post-traumatic stress and all this stuff. And when they got sober and uh, didn't have these saying, I'm not saying people, there's some people that need it. But it's amazing that many folks have just simply been misdiagnosed because they had gone to a doctor very early in recovery and um, they haven't talked about their alcoholism. They just talked about their depression. Yeah, and you know, uh, so, sometimes, sometimes if you get on some of the the more serious uh, uh, medication for uh, those type of uh, psychiatric or psychological issues, it can really make it harder to recover because what what it does is it it flatlines you uh, emotionally, mm-hmm. and if you're flatlined emotionally, you can be flatlined spiritually, and you know, you you can you cannot seem to make much progress even though you're doing some heroic uh, step work. You know, I, I, I've seen that happen, and that's that's probably the most tragic of all. Sure. Uh, to to not, not get the benefit of the spiritual awakening. Yeah. To take inventory in this respect, we ought to consider carefully all personal relationships which bring continuous or recurring trouble. <laughs> it should be remembered that this kind of insecurity may arise in any area where instincts are threatened. Questioning directed to this end might run like this. Looking at both past and present, what sex situations have caused me anxiety, anxiety, bitterness, frustration, or depression? Appraising each situation fairly, can I see where I have been at fault? Did these perplexities beset me because of selfishness or unreasonable demands? Or, if my disturbance was seemingly caused by the behavior of others, why do I lack the ability to accept conditions I cannot change? These are the sort of fundamental inquiries that can disclose the source of my discomfort and indicate whether I may be able to alter my own conduct and so adjust myself serenely to self-discipline. Man, that is so profound. That, that, that is basically saying, let me see how I've set myself up so that I can begin not to set myself up again and open myself up to uh, more serenity, which is which is what we want anyway. I, you know, so often that's that's really our goal anyway. You know, we are looking we are looking for um, for serenity of one kind or another. We're looking to feel better. Uh, that's really what uh, what drives so much uh, of our nature is to uh, is to try to find a way to feel better. Isn't it interesting, and this is in no way limited to alcoholics or addicts, uh, people in general, when it comes to other people, when it comes to personal relationships which bring continuous or reoccurring trouble, you can tell us what we need to do in every aspect of our lives, but don't meddle in that one. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I see people in meetings doing all this stuff, and, and everything is, is just great. But that relationship that they're in, where, I mean, they're, they're, they're still sneaking over to the gal's house that has a restraining order on them. 
they're still playing house with so-and-so who's, you know, actually underage, but nobody seems to talk about it, you know, that kind of thing. And and they're still in destructive relationships. And if you're pastor, rabbi, priest, or, 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 or your sponsor, your spiritual advisor, even bring it up, it's like you're not allowed in that. You know, I've seen suicide packs like that go on mm. time and time again. You know, there was a, there was a beautiful example uh, of this about ten years ago. Uh, you know, in in one of, in one of the support groups that uh, I was a part of, and it basically was someone was having an affair with uh, with a, a married you know two married people married to different people you know in yeah. a support group were having an affair with each other and. Even their even even their sponsors uh, had a hands off. We're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about that attitude. Now that's a suicide pact. Okay, mm. I'll tell you what. You don't you don't push me on these unmentionables. You don't push me over here because this is off limits, and I won't hold you accountable for what you decide is off limits. Well, yeah. it's those off limits things that are going to kill us. Yeah. Yeah, so that's for sure. It's a suicide pact. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But we beg of you to be fearless and thorough before the very start. Uh, rigorous honesty. Rigorous honesty. Shine that light on every single part of your world. You'll be okay. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. Okay. Don't worry that if don't worry that that, that recovery is going to interfere with your sex life. You know, you're you're most likely going to have better sex than you've ever had before uh, once you get sober. You, you, you know, it'll be more of a healthy variety. Uh, you know, worry less about that stuff than than about it. It, it has the power to take you out. And it's it's hard, particularly for young people today, because we live in a society. Where, let's face it, um, people call good evil and evil good. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I, I mean, there are there are things where, you know, I sit back and I watch uh, some folks, some younger folks, and I, and, I, and I think, are you kidding me? And I have to realize they don't know any better. They were raised by a generation that justified uh, immoral behavior and bad decisions and, and things like that. And, you know, I... I mean, I even, I even look at, at some people that I am very, very close with, uh, young people, and I think to myself, what is that guy thinking? And well, the thing is, he doesn't, not only is he not thinking, he doesn't have a moral compass to, to even adjust his thinking. He, he wasn't raised with it. Yeah, and uh, I'll tell you, uh, TV and movies and stuff, they, they, uh, they don't help. <laughs> no, they don't. They show they show the coolest person is the person that has the most sex with the most people, and and I'll tell you what that's about the most dangerous thing for an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, because uh, or or a drug addict because what happens is you you emotionally attach you bond, and so you can you you know you may think you can run around and have all this uh, gratuitous sex. But it, it's going to rip you up, and it, it's going to it's going to cause you all kinds of problems: uh, jealousy, suspicion, bitterness, resentment, uh, fear. All that is going to be generated while you're out there trying to have fun. Uh, you, I don't I don't think that the alcoholic or the addict is really capable of that without paying some kind of price. Yeah, and it's really it is really a form of abuse, self abuse, as well as abusing the other person. Um, 
particularly if you're a, a male, because women take this stuff very seriously. Uh, oh, ab- ab- absolutely. Yeah. And if and if you're about the business of mis, you know, misleading somebody so that you can have your way, then there then there's a whole other series of problems that you're oh, going right. to need to deal with someday. Oh, you cause a, a whole lot of harm, and you can't leave uh, unresolved harm uh, uh, unresolved. Unresolved. Yeah. A p- part of uh, part of the eighth and the ninth step is to resolve those harms. So you know, uh, um, we 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 can't just we can't just uh, burn through our life uh, causing pain to everybody and not pay some kind of a price for it. Yeah. A, no, a non-alcoholic or a non-drug addict can. Uh, uh, what, what happens with the alcoholic or the addict is they can't get past the emotions that that harm has caused. Sure. Um, suppose that financial insecurity cons- constantly arouses these same feelings. I can ask myself to what extent have my own mistakes fed my gnawing anxieties. And if that the actions of others are part of the cause, what can I do about that? If I am unable to change the present state of affairs, am I willing to take the measures necessary to shape my life to conditions as they are? Questions like these, more of which will come to mind easily in each individual case, will help turn up the root causes. But it is from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. We have been especially stupid and stubborn about them. The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Our egomania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know or depend upon them far too much. If we lean too heavily on people, they will sooner or later fail us, for they are human too, and cannot possibly meet our incessant demands. In this way, our insecurity grows and festers. We have habitually, we habitually, when we habitually try to manipulate others to our own wistful desires, they revolt and resist us heavily. Then we develop hurt feelings, a sense of persecution, and a desire to retaliate. As we redouble our efforts at control and continue to fail, our suffering becomes acute and constant. We have not once sought to be one in a family, to be a friend among friends, to be a worker among workers, to be a useful member of society. Always we tried to struggle to the top of the heap or to hide underneath it. This self-centered behavior blocked a partnership relation with any one of those about us. Of true brotherhood, we had small comprehension. One of the great things that you hear in uh, in, in recovery is that we're egomaniacs with a lack of self-esteem. <laughs> mm-hmm. We we think that we're uh, we're so much smarter and so much better than other people, yet we don't deserve to be in their presence. It's just right. it, it's it's a crazy <laughs> uh, dichotomy. But uh, uh, again, you know, having all those bizarre perceptions uh, and and belief systems is. Uh, is what's contributing to, truly contributing to our, our alcoholism or our drug addiction. Do you, do you think that uh, addicts and alcoholics tend to be um, more passive aggressive than the average Joe? Yes, I, I think uh, I think addicts and alcoholics tend to be more uh, emotional in general. Yeah. Uh, you know, across the spectrum mm-hmm. than uh, non-alcoholics or or drug addicts. Sometimes it, it, it you know sometimes it makes us kind of. Uh, fun to be with sometimes it makes us the the energy in a party you know so sometimes it, it makes us the ridicule of the party or the family <laughs> yeah. uh 
um, you know, we're 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 uh, the Bhagwan Rajneesh, and this is somebody that uh, uh, I think he, I think he's changed his name to Osho now. Um, he lived out in your your neck of the woods there, Monty. Right. Uh, very very interesting character. Anyway, one day uh, somebody asked him, you know, why why do you why do you have so many alcoholics uh, uh, in your presence? And, and he goes, I find them very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I I can tell you, you know, we, you know, sit back and watch the show when Uncle Harry shows up at the party if he's drinking. You, you know, we uh, we we can we can be very very interesting. The the problem is is the damage that gets done to our to our to our psyche to our uh, you know to our uh, our spirit, we we continually damage our spirit, and then we show up in the in the recovery rooms, and uh, there has to be a spiritual awakening because we've damaged our spirits to such a point that you know they've they've become buried underneath all the rubble that we've thrown on them. Right, and and uh, and that's why we're going to need a a spiritual overhauling and a, an emotional overhauling and a behavioral overhauling. Uh, because of all this, uh, all this damage, <clears throat> some will object to uh, to many of the questions posed because they think their own character defects have not been so glaring. To these, it can be suggested that a conscientious examination is likely to reveal the very defects the objectional questions are concerned with. Because our surface record hasn't looked too bad, we have frequently been abashed to find that this is so. Uh, this is so simply because we have buried these self-same defects deep down in us under thick layers of self-justification. Whatever the defects, they have finally ambushed us into alcoholism and misery. This isn't the first time Bill has said that our alcoholism has been caused by our character defects. Mm. Now, now, now think about that. You know, in today's day and age, Monty, they're finding that uh, that alcoholism is, is has a huge genetic component. Sure, uh, there's there's actually uh, genetic testing uh, that can be done now on infants, and they can tell within a few percentage points whether they'll be alcoholic or not. Uh, I mean, it is definitely definitely got a genetic component, but that genetic component somehow is related to the spiritual makeup of the individual how sensitive they are going to be to environmental changes and uh, and the resultant character defects that are going to uh, uh, going to develop within them as a person very very interesting uh, fields of of study today and there's a lot of really great scientific uh, work being done on it but again if if we had the money that was spent on research uh, and took that money and spent it on treatment, I think we'd be in much better shape because i got to tell you, knowing why someone is alcoholic is really the booby prize. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, what's done is done. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's a genetic bullet, what's done, it's done is done. Uh, let's, let's focus on the solution because at least in alcoholism, alcoholism is recover. You can recover from alcoholism. You can recover from drug addiction. You can recover from that. There's true healing. There's true recovery possible. And it's tied in very, very directly to one's willingness to participate in a recovery process. So that's really where all the attention and I think all the money should be focused. Uh, You know, uh, I'm not that interested in you know, 
finding out more about why I'm alcoholic or you're alcoholic. I, I'm, today I'm more interested in, uh, in, in being part of a life that embraces recovery and embraces uh, the, uh, uh, the service work that results in helping other people uh, understand their, um, uh, their illness and recover from it themselves. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, good point. Good boy. We spent we spent a lot of time. I, you know, I I went through outpatient treatment, and the one thing I I I really did appreciate about that was uh, when I went in, I I really thought I was this you know horrible person, and when it was explained to me how the brain works and the metabolism and all that kind of thing, it it helped me to understand that I wasn't this you know this this real stink bomb. I was, I, I had a problem. Right, yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, so, so much of the time spent was clinical, you know, not spiritual. Yeah, and, and again, uh, uh, clinic, clinical, clinical is good for, uh, problems other than alcohol and other than, uh, drug addiction. Cl- clinical doesn't resolve any of the true underlying characteristics. Of right alcoholism or, or, or drug addiction. You know, trying trying to treat alcoholism or drug addiction through uh, psychological clinical methods or pharmacological methods that, you know, you're, you're at best treating symptoms. You're, you're not even touching the core problem. Uh, for recovery to happen, you, you have to, you have to uh, engage in a process that's going to heal the core. Yeah. And you can't do that sitting in front of a therapist an hour a week. It just isn't going to cut it. It's got to be part of a whole life system change. So, you know, it's got to be. It's got to be a. It's got to be a practice. A practice of principles that are going to bring about a spiritual awakening. You know, I'm going to use that 1939 language because there's uh, there's been nothing written to surpass it in, mm-hmm. in my estimation. Mm-hmm. And believe me, I've paid attention. Uh, I've paid attention to professional uh, addiction treatment, uh, and you know the ones that are really honest, uh, they'll definitely agree with us, Monty. That 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 when there are recoveries, they they can't claim them as successes for them. Uh, and when there are failures, uh, that's what they've come to expect. Uh, and, and you know, it's it's a, it's a shame. And uh, again, there are some serious changes uh, coming as far as how uh, reimbursement agencies are going to deal with addiction and alcoholism treatment coming our way. Uh, we're we're really heading toward a, a pee in the cup. Uh, take this pill and come back next week type of a treatment for uh, for alcoholism and drug addiction unfortunately uh, that's what I that's what I believe it's mm. gonna gonna turn into because that's the cheap way uh, but uh, you know uh, there always will be uh, the 12-step movement that'll talk about recovery and offer offer recovery yeah yeah therefore uh, thoroughness ought to be the watchword when taking inventory. In this connection, it is wise to write out our questions and answers. It will be an aid to clear thinking and honest appraisal. And that's really the exercise, to write it down. It will be the first tangible evidence of our complete willingness to move forward. You know, that's a very, very 
powerful statement. And I believe, I believe, when someone starts writing uh, step four, they've entered recovery. They've 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 entered the arena of recovery. Yeah, and and, and we we hear so many people that get stuck at step four, and I don't mean they're they're in the middle of it. I mean, they don't even start it and they're stuck, you know, because uh, some somewhere along the line, somebody's told them that they have to write this novel, you know, and that's pretty scary. Well, there's a lot of treatment centers that want you to do a life story, and, and that's not a fourth step. That's a that's quite possibly a first step. Right. Step. But it's it's not a it's not a four step, and and I'll tell you what if 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 you're one of those people that that you know raises your hand at every four step meeting and say you know you're working on it and you've been working on it for six months, I'll tell you how long it takes to do a four step. It takes a week and four hours, uh, or it can take a month and four hours, or it can take six months and four hours, or it can take a year and four hours. <laughs> you understand what I'm getting? Yeah. At? Yeah. Takes about four hours. <laughs> so, so you know, you you schedule your time uh, appropriately. Go go ahead. If you're not sitting there doing it, you're you either you either misunderstand how aggressive alcoholism is, or you misunderstand what the what the treatment for alcoholism is. You know, one of those two things. Otherwise, you would prioritize the four step ahead of going to work. Yeah, (laughs) it it would be the most important thing. It would be like it would be like if if you came down with with a certain disease and you needed to go get the pills uh, to to uh, to get over it. You know, you would take the take that morning off of work to go get the pills. You would prioritize it very high. Well, if you're not doing the same thing with the four step, then you misunderstand alcoholism or you misunderstand the recovery process. Well, Chris, we are out of time, and uh, folks, go back. It's a beautiful thing about this uh, kind of thing is because we have archives and so forth, you can go back and listen to this stuff over and over again. If you don't understand something, you can just rewind on the play button, and uh, you can also uh, download the first three shows of Walking Through the 12 by 12 to your um, computer or mobile device, MP3 player or whatever, iPhone, uh, and Please know this, that we still have many um, available, the Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder uh, available. You can uh, click on Walking Through the Big Book on the left-hand side bottom of most every page we have, and it'll tell you also how to uh, pick up that DVD. And we're going to make a DV- an audio DVD available for you of Walking Through the 12 Steps of 12 Traditions as well. Already getting requests for that. So um, just, just bear with us because we've still got a ways to go. We've got more steps to do, and then we have the traditions. So uh, hang in there with us, listen along with us, and read along with us. And when we have those available, we'll let you know just as soon as we do so we can get those out to you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Monty. Next week, step five, right? Yep, absolutely. All right. That's been good. It's always good. This is Monty Man and Chris Schroeder, and we're wishing serenity for you. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. (laughs) 